Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is where we'll be um, this morning. I spent my first year out of high school in a Bible school in upstate New York. And at this Bible school, it was in the middle of the Adirondack Mountains. And so, which means it's a beautiful place when it's not snowing. When it's snowing, there's really nothing to do unless you ski. And I can't, e- I can't even stand on a skateboard. So I did nothing like that. And so here I was in upstate New York, and between November uh, through all the way through May, there's snow on the ground. And I'm talking like very, like insane amount of snow, like four or five feet of snow. And there was times that where we would be left on campus. We couldn't leave campus. They would say, the roads are too dangerous. You have to stay here. And so this is a small Bible school of around uh, 800 students or something like that. And we're kind of all stuck on this campus, so we're like stuck like on top of each other. It's, it's really a tough situation to be in. And so here I was, 19 years old, what are we going to do? So I just started to pull pranks on people because that was fun. And so what I did was I would get like a, um, one of those like balloon launchers and I would take that and put it on top of our dorm, on the balcony of our dorm, and I would, I would like take snowballs and put those in there and shoot them at the library and hit the library. Someone would come out and then I'd shoot them. And that's very dangerous, by the way. You could actually kill somebody like that. So I have no idea what I was thinking. And some, some of the times I would, um, one of the better pranks I did was we uh, hid alarm clocks in one of the other dorms next to us and set them at three different, like uh, at 30 minute, 30 seconds apart and hid them all over this one dorm where we put like 15 or so little mini alarm clocks you get from the dollar store. So we started it at like 1230 and it went all the way through like, you know, like two o'clock in the morning. So here you go. You know, we're listening like we're we, we planted all these, you know, um, alarm clock bombs all over the, the, their dorm. And then we hear the first one go off and then they get up and they try to find it and they're yelling and screaming at each other, cut your alarm off, it's not mine. Then, then they cut that one off and then like right after they cut that one off, another one starts and another one starts and another one starts. And so really a great prank. Um, so, but the one time uh, I committed, this, this one prank I did was uh, very targeted. I had a friend of mine who was, uh, he was roommates with the student body president of the school. And that guy just had like the arrogant student body president vibe to him. I just didn't like him, okay? And um, he, I remember going to see my friend and I, would, I, would, I walked into his dorm room one time and here he was with his buddy. Uh, actually, he wasn't there, but his buddy was there, the student body president. And there he was looking at himself in the mirror with his shirt off with an acoustic guitar, playing worship songs. And I was like, all right, you're getting pranked. There's no way around this. You have to be pranked. And so what we did is a group, me and a a couple other guys, we um, went to this petting zoo, which is not far from campus, because this campus also had like a a summer camp for like um, little kids. And so we took a goat from the petting zoo. And we're like, that would be perfect for the inside of his dorm um, and so what we did is we snuck that goat into his dorm. And by the time we're opening the door, the RA comes out and we get caught. And so here he is. He's waking up to, and we're, we're like trying to explain this, you know, like how do you explain that situation? And so they said, well, you're, you know, you're definitely going to have to, results, there's going to be consequences to what you've done. And so here is this Bible school, so you have to like do like community service hours and things like that. And then, so we had to do that. And then they said, the other thing we want you to do is we want you to say you're sorry. 
And we're like, oh, okay, like, I really, I would really want to do this again. Like, so they said, well, how do we do that? Well, we just write a letter of apology. Oh, okay, I'll do that. And so what do we do? We wrote a letter of apology and sent it in, and that's it. And guess what? I would do it again today, all right? I would do it again today. And so I did that apology, and I did not mean it, okay? I did not mean it. He needed a prank, okay? He, he stood in front of the mirror with his, you know, just give me a break. He needed a prank. Like, so here I was, no apology, even though I said I was sorry. Now, as weird as that story is, if we aren't careful, we can do the same thing with our own sin. Uh, we can sin and just say, I'm sorry, God, or I'm sorry to this person, and then we just keep doing it, and there's no real um, consequences or we don't feel the weight of what we've done and there's no real responsibility um, for what we've done. And if we're not careful of seeing that in our own lives, we also won't see it in the lives of others, of what it looks like when a person is truly sorry or what does it look like when a person is truly repentant. I remember uh, a few years ago, I knew of a pastor who uh, I, I knew him personally and I would always just had a sketchy vibe about him. He would, when he would talk to other women, he would talk to them, and I thought, in a very inappropriate way. He was always sort of in their personal body space and really touchy-feely, like over the top. And uh, So I wasn't shocked that I found out that he had found himself in a couple of extramarital affairs. And I don't, I'll never forget, like, after I saw him, even after that incident, he would use all the spiritual language well, brother, the Lord's just teaching me so much. You know, the Lord's doing these things. And just kind of the same. But never, like, did he change the way that he interacted with people. He didn't have a posture of humility. He was still very arrogant and standoffish. And so I was like, something's not right. I don't, I don't feel like we have the whole story. I don't feel like he's not truly repentant. And so what happened? Well, he cheated again. And he cheated again. So what was it? in me that caused me to question his repentance? What was really missing there? And, and what should we see when someone is truly repentant? That's the big idea that I'll have this morning in Jonah chapter 2. So we've been going through this book in Jonah, and this is what we do in integrity. We'll take a book of the Bible, we'll go through it verse by verse. And what we've seen so far is Jonah is a prophet, and he's commanded by God to go to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to do it because the Ninevites are cruel and wicked people, and they've also hurt people that he knows. And they're gonna, their, their plan was to wipe out all of Israel. And so God tells him, go to the Ninevites, and he doesn't do it, so he runs. He runs in the opposite direction. And then from running in the opposite direction, God causes a storm and God causes lots to fall on him, and he's thrown off a ship, and then God sovereignly uh, raises up a big fish to swallow him whole. And we said last week that this was God's love for Jonah by not allowing, God, uh, allowing Jonah to fall down the downward spiral of sin. God stops him dead in his tracks, and it's there in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights, which sounds very familiar, does it not? Three days and three nights, he's in the belly of this fish. And we begin to see the stages of repentance. We begin to see the evidence, at least at this point in his life, evidence of repentance. And so I want to walk you through those this morning. We'll start in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my, what's the word? Distress, that was good. And he answered me. 
Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and, and your billows had passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. Now, interestingly enough, this is the most that Jonah has spoken thus far in the book. And notice how he is crying out. And it's very interesting language that he's using here because he's actually quoting from much of the Psalms. If you look in, in, in all the way through Jonah chapter 2, you're going to see um, the psalmist say exactly the same thing. And Jonah being a prophet, he would have been very familiar with the Psalms, being very familiar with, uh, with, with what was written of the Old Testament at that point. So for instance, if you look at Psalm 18 verse 6, the psalmist says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reaches his ears. Psalm 42, verse 7, uh, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. Psalm 31, verse 22, I said in my alarm, I cut Uh, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Now, why is Jonah literally echoing much uh, much of the psalm from this lament? Well, it's because they're psalms of distress. These are psalms where someone is broken over their sin and they realize the weight of their sin. They realize it so much that they they feel literally unworthy to be in the presence of God. And Jonah realizes this so much that the the damage that his sin has created a, a distance now between him and God. He says, I am driven away from your sight. And this is the beginning of recognizing Jonah's repentance. He realizes how far his sin has taken him, so much that he questions whether or not God is even near. And I think this is important for us to see this morning, because in order for us to walk in steps of repentance, we have to first realize the damage that our sin has caused, not just in our own lives, not just with the lives of others, but even the damage that it recalls in our relationship with God. Now, I want to say a couple things about that. God does not forsake us if we're truly believers. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he lived the perfect life, and he died the death that we should have lived, and you, he, you, he resurrected from the grave, and you repented of your sins, and you've trusted Only in the gospel, you will have the Holy Spirit of God in your life, which means that God will never forsake you and God will not love you any more or any less because he loves you perfectly right now as you are if you're a believer. That's wonderful news, is it not? That's wonderful news. That's the gospel. So, which means God is not going to um, distance himself from you because of your sin. That's not what God does if you're a believer. He doesn't distance himself from you because of your sin. He doesn't love some of his children more than others. He doesn't. So what does it mean that our sin affects our relationship with God? The distance that we feel between our relationship with God is because of our sin. 
It's how our, um, we don't see now, because of our sin, the gospel clearly. Our sin causes a murkiness with how we see the gospel. And so it's not our distorted view that creates, and it's not God's distorted view of, that creates the distance between us and God because of our sin. It's our distorted view. And so because of our distorted view of the gospel that sin creates, there's a worthlessness that we bring on ourselves. We believe that God cannot use us because of our sin. We believe that we are worthless in the sense that God doesn't love us or God is distant, which is exactly where Jonah is. But when you truly repent, there's this sense where you realize the damage that you've created and you realize how badly your view of the gospel or the view of your view of God has been screwed up. I had a good friend of mine, one of my closest friends, who was also caught in an extramarital affair. And when somebody gets caught up in sin that way, uh, what often happens, they, they don't just get there overnight. Like we talked about this last week, was there's this downward progression of sin. And we just keep sinning and keep sinning and keep sinning. We don't stop or God doesn't stop us. So we keep doing And so what ends up happening is we snowball and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And when somebody falls into an affair, for instance, they get there by lying a lot. And oftentimes when someone initially gets caught in that sin, they're still greatly deceived. Like they're still tangled up in their own lies denial. They're still tangled up in their own entitlement. So it's really hard to break. Honestly, only God can do that. Only God can break those patterns. But here's how we knew when my friend was serious and he was ready to repent. There was a brokenness about him. He realized that if I don't straighten up, I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my friends. And not only that, he also realizes that this is messed up with my, even my view of God is skewed. And perhaps even an evidence of that brokenness was he wasn't blaming anyone for what he had done. And so what I'm saying is when someone is truly repentant, they don't use the word but. When someone's truly repentant, they're not saying, yeah, I do gossip, but I gossip because you realize how bad they are, right? I mean, I gossip because I just need, but I just need to vent sometimes. So that's not really repentance because you're saying you're blaming something and you're not taking full responsibility. You're not saying I'm responsible for this. You're saying I would, I'm doing this because this and this and this. Now, if you're married, you'll probably understand this a little bit more because you've been in that fight already, that argument where you said, well, I did this, and I'm sorry that I did this, but if you would clean more, I wouldn't act this way, right? But if you would remember to get the groceries, like my wife's always texting me, can you, get the gro- can you get these things? And I'll say yes, and then I'll just forget. And I'll say, well, I forgot, but if you, you know, and so I, I, there's always these buts. There's buts everywhere. Buts everywhere. But here's the thing about that. There's no repentance. 
There's no repentance. And so when you're really repentant, you're not saying the word but. You're saying, I will totally own this. This is totally on me. This is my responsibility. This is my sin. I mean, think about the very first time Adam and Eve in the garden when they took the fruit. What did they do? Well, God was looking for them. They were naked and they were ashamed of their sins. They, they took fig leaves and tried to cover them up. And then what happens in Genesis chapter 3? He says in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, um, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of, of the tree and I ate. So notice that. It's, it's not my mistake. It's the woman's mistake. And it's the woman that you gave me. So it's both of your mistakes. There's no ownership there. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, oh, it's a serpent. Deceive me, and I ate. So listen, if we're truly repentant, we won't say the word but. We won't blame others. We'll take ownership of our sin, and this is where it begins. And so that's not the only evidence of repentance. There's more in verse 5. The waters close in over me to take my life. The deep surround me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. The roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed up, um, closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now I want you to notice the language that Jonah is using here. Jonah hasn't even asked God to deliver him yet, but he knows that God can deliver him. And he realizes that I'm in an impossible situation. I am wrapped up and caught dead in my sin. But notice there's a dependence on God that he feels from this moment. There's a dependence on God that he recognizes that you are the only one who can help me. And this is the mark of a truly repentant person. They realize their dependence is on God. Not just for the situation that they're in, but for everything. Everything, we're utterly dependent on God. You know what that's called? It's called humility. When you're a humble person, that means you realize that I can do nothing on my own and I can do only anything I do is out of the grace of God. The only reason why I don't sin this way is by the grace of God. The only way, way I was able to obey is by the grace of God. And it's you recognizing that you are, that God, you're, you're utterly dependent on God. I love this story in Matthew 18. The disciples, they're interesting guys, right? These guys are fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're social outcasts. And all of a sudden, when they're with Jesus, they, they want to act like they're rock stars. It's unbelievable. And there's, this, there's a couple of scenes in the Gospels where they debate which one of us is the greatest and which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus always corrects them and brings them back to his purpose rather than theirs. And I love this in Matthew 18, verse 1. At the, the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he he put in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, what's the word? Humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is the idea that we get. This is the passage where we get the idea of 
childlike faith. Have you ever heard that idea of we need to have faith like a child, childlike faith? What does this mean? Well, most of the time when people hear about childlike faith, they do this with it. They say, well, that means we don't need to know the deep things of God. We just need to keep it simple and just know that, you know, God is good, hell is hot, Jesus saves, and that's all you need to know about God. No, no, no. Like, listen, that's not what it means to have childlike faith. What he's saying is the way that this child approached Jesus, the humble posture that this child approached Jesus. It wasn't like one of the disciples of, what can I get out of this? What can I do? How can you make me great? No, the the child just comes to Jesus as he is. And there's this dependence on God that a child has, and that's what he's saying. I've seen that with my own boys. I remember, I, I, I have two boys. I said, I remember that I have two boys. I remember I have two boys, suddenly. I have two boys, and I remember this one moment that I was left with my youngest son, um, Gideon, and I have a routine. Like every night, I make sure my boys, they brush their teeth, they get a bath, and I say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pray, and they'll go to bed, and I do that every night. So I've, you know, sat and I've been splashed many times is what I'm trying to say. And so here I am with my youngest Gideon, he was just a few months old at this point, could barely, he couldn't sit up, couldn't do anything on his own. But one of my favorite things to do was put them in the bathtub and then let the water run and rise up underneath them and just watch their face and watch them kick and watch them scream and all these things. And, uh, <laughs> and my wife was gone and it was just he and I. And I had this thought, like, what happens if like I have a brain aneurysm, and I just pass out. Well, the water is just going to keep rising, and there's nothing I can do, and there's nothing he can do. And so, like, I had, like, a crazy paranoid dad moment. Like, I'm turning off the water, and like, you know, are you okay? I hope I don't pass out. You know, like, I'm just, you know, I had that moment of just fear that comes upon me. But I started realizing he can't do anything without me. And, like, even, even the older he gets, the more, both my boys, they realize I can do things without my dad. But here's the reality. Zombie apocalypse happens, right? Jess and I are taken out early. We turn early, whatever. And they're left. It's going to go badly, right? My oldest son, I've taught him how to fish and do things. So, like, maybe he, if he finds a good, like, worms and some fishing hole or something like that, he can survive. Let's give him a year in a zombie apocalypse but he can make it. My, my youngest guy, he's only four years old. Like, he's going to go through the refrigerator and find... He, let's give him two months at best, right? But here's the thing. They are utterly dependent on us. And I want them to believe that until they're 35 years old. Not really. I want them to get out at 18 and find a beautiful wife and all those things. But I want... So, so they're 100% dependent on me whether they believe that or not. Now, the older they get, they think that they can do things on their own without their parents, but they actually can't. They can't go to a restaurant and order food because they don't have money. All right, he can go get a job if he wants, but in this economy, it's going to be tough for a nine-year-old, four-year-old to find jobs, right? But they're utterly dependent on us. They are absolutely dependent on us. And this is the thing. That is what he means. He says, you come to me like a child. You realize I can't do anything without my father. I can't do anything without my heavenly father who loves me. 
You know what that is? That's humble. That's a humble approach to God. So he says, yes, you come to me like a child. You come to me with humility. You come to me knowing that there's nothing that you can do without me. The good thing about repentance is that it brings disparity in our life, but it brings us to a place where God is not just an option. God is the only option. He's the only option that we have. And guess what? That is a good thing. That's a really good thing when our sin brings us to despair and brings us to a point where God is not just an option, but he's the only option that you have. That's a good thing. And that's what repentance should do in our lives. And then we're going to see other evidences. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, this is a very key, this is a key verse in Jonah, because actually it's right in the middle of Jonah. It's, um, there's 24 verses before, and there's 23 verses right after. And so this is right in the middle. And I think this is a key verse because it, it captures where Jonah is. He says, he talks about these idols, and he talks also about the steadfast love that God has. So the idolatry, that honestly makes you think that he's not talking about himself. He, what we've seen about idolatry so far, it's with the Ninevites or with the, the sailors at the end of chapter 1. Um, but there's another aspect that he talks about, and it's the steadfast love of God. And that word is actually hesed. And hesed in Hebrew, it's actually the Old Testament word for how God describes his love only for Israel. And so when Israelite saw this word, this steadfast, this, this phrase, steadfast love, which, which in Hebrew is hesed, they would think, this is God's love for us. So the fact that Jonah mentions hesed, it's clearly he's not talking about the Ninevites. He's not talking about the sailors. He's talking about himself. He's talking about not the idolatry of the sailors, not the idolatry of the Ninevites. He's talking about his own idolatry. And here's why that's so important for us to see, because first of all, when we're, sin, when we're in sin, we're not thinking about everyone else's problems. We're thinking about our own. We're going, how in the world can God forgive me? How in the world can others forgive me? That's the, that's the sign of a repentant person, and this is where he's at. He's going, this is my idolatry. And, I, and what he's saying is, I've traded my, um, the steadfast love of God for giving myself over to idols. And he's starting to see it. And he's starting to recognize that in his life. So what have we seen so far? We've seen, first of all, there's a brokenness of our sin for truly repentant. Second of all, we realize that there's a dependence that we begin to have on God. We realize that we're nothing without him. And then we just see this. There's an emptiness of idols in our lives. That's another sign and evidence of repentance. Now, I know in 2016, we have trouble wrapping our minds around idols we think of idols as golden statues in the middle of the street that people bow down and worship. I've been to Bangkok, Thailand before, and I've, been, I've seen people literally bow down before false images or, or um, graven images. And you say, oh, and they you would say, oh man, that's idolatry. Look at the idols that are all around us. But listen, there's, there's idols. There's just as many idols in the United States that are in Bangkok. Like they actually call it what it is, they say, that's my God. We call it something else. 
We call it television. It's TV. It could even be family. It could be friends. It could be anything that we love more than God. And that is literally what an idol is. What do you trust more than God? That's your idol. What do you crave more than God? Paul says in Romans 1 that idolatry was behind the very first sin in the garden. What's the first sin in the garden? They wanted to take the tree. Why they want to take the tree? So they can have knowledge of good and evil and they could be like God. The idolatry of taking the place of God. And this is I, I, actually the phrase worship. It actually comes from worth-ship. It's where you find your worth. That is your God. Martin Luther says it brilliantly when he says, To whatever we look for any good thing, and for refuge in every need. And what is, that is what is meant by God. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. So Integrity Church, where, where do we find our refuge? Where do we entrust our being? Those can be good things. But if they replace God, they're bad things. What is that one thing that you cannot live without? What is that one thing that you are envious that others have and that you don't? What do you stay up late at night worrying about losing? What are you bitter about having lost? What's the one thing that you could say, without that, my life is really not worth living? How about refuge? Where do you find your refuge? What brings the greatest source of comfort to you? Where do you turn to when life gets difficult? Do you turn to friends? Do you turn to family? Do you turn to a drink? Do you turn to food, shopping, boyfriend, girlfriend, Netflix? What is it that you turn to? And these are things that in and of themselves are not necessarily bad things. They're good things that we've, remade, that we've made into ultimate things. Or good things that have become God things. And good things that become God things are bad things. Tim Keller says it this way, a wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods. It's one of the best books I've ever read on idolatry. And he writes this, We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Is that not true? Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the best things in life. And here's where God has Jonah. God has Jonah at a place where he's repentant and he's realizing the things that have replaced God in his life. And each time is what Jonah is recognizing. Each time we do that, we distort the grace of God in the steadfast love that he offers So when we realize that God is actively pursuing us, what always ends up showing up in our life, when God is actively pursuing us and we are walking in repentance, what happens as a result is our idols begin to empty out of our lives. So we've seen the evidence. Brokenness over sin, dependence on God, and emptiness of idols. But there's wonderful news here on the other side that we're going to see in verses 9 and 10. The beauty of repentance is that we can be rescued. We can be saved from ourselves, and we can be saved 
from our sin. And that's verse 9 and 10. This is what he says. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Then he says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is what the Lord did. The Lord spoke to the fish and has vomited Jonah upon the dry land. I love this because in Jonah's despair, he realizes he cannot be saved. He realizes that only God can save him. So the beauty of repentance is that God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we don't rely on our own strength, but we finally rely on his. And I hear the argument all the time. People say, well, I don't want to become a Christian because Christianity is a crutch. I'm going to say to you this. It's more than that. Like, I don't need Christianity because I need to learn how to walk better. Like, I need Christ because I can do nothing without him. The gospel says, you didn't need a crutch, you were actually dead. And the only way that you actually live, if you know the gospel and believe in Jesus. So it's not a crutch, it's a life support. It is everything. And it's where you realize, I'm nothing without him, this is my sin, I've got nothing to hide because salvation belongs to you anyway, so everything really, it comes back to the gospel. And here in Integrity, we'll say it this way. The gospel is our epicenter. It's the hub of everything we do. It's everything that we think and how we live. And only a repentant heart can come to that realization that everything comes back to the gospel. So when we're broken, when when we're caught in our sin, when we're dead in our sin, the only hope that we have is Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross. And the idea of coming back to the conclusion that salvation belongs to the Lord. And salvation belongs to the Lord communicates something massive in our life. And here's why it's so important. Because here in the South, in the Bible Belt, people will often, they're so religious and um, religiously proud that they believe that because of what I've done, salvation belongs to me. Because of all the good things that I do, And all the bad things that I try to put out of my life, then salvation belongs to me. I've earned it. It belongs to me. That's what a religious person says. That's not what a gospel person says. A gospel person says salvation belongs to God. It's his. And he offers it freely, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And here's why that's so important. What we're going to say for eternity is salvation belongs to the Lord. That is what you and I are going to say for eternity. If you're a believer in Christ, when you get to heaven, you're not going to say, here's all the wonderful things that I've done. Look at all these things that I've done. Look at all the sin that I fought. Look at all the people that I shared the gospel with. Look at all the money that I gave. Look at all the, you know, the, the way that I've served. Look at how many hours I've worked in the church and serving people. No, 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 no. You're going to say salvation belongs to the Lord. All of us are going to say that. And if you don't, you don't get the gospel. You don't get the gospel if you're, not, if you're going to get up there and boast in yourself. It's not going to be about what you did or didn't do. It's not going to be about how successful you are, how much money you have. It's not going to be about how well-behaved your children are, how long you were married, all those things. It's not going to be about even how many people you shared the gospel with. 
It's going to be about salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is, and I can say that because it's in the Bible. Like the way that when John, when he sees the future and what's happening in heaven and in the book of Revelation, this is exactly what he sees. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, what are they saying? What's everybody saying? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is what all of us who believe are going to say for eternity. So that's what eternity is going to be about for us. So listen, if, if, if that's what eternity is about, why do we try so hard to protect our identity here? Why do we try so hard to hold on to our own idols when we know that they will not last? Why do we try desperately to hide our sin and not want to see it be brought to light when we're in heaven we're going to get there and we're going to say salvation belongs to the Lord? Why are we hanging on to all this junk down here when it doesn't matter in the end because we're not going to boast in ourselves anyway? Why do we do that? It's because we struggle to believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. We struggle with that here. And we sin and we say, well, there's no way I can be rescued. There's no way I'm going to stop. There's no way that someone is going to look at me, everyone's going to look at me different now because of what I've done. There's no way that someone could love me because of what I've done. There's no way that God can love me with what I've done. That's the lie from Satan. Because it's never been about you. It's always been about him. Salvation does not belong to you. It belongs to God. So would you, in your sin this morning, believe the gospel Believe that in what John says in 1 John, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you believe that this morning? And would it not be about you, but would it be about him? And so this morning, if you're willing to do that, there's evidence of repentance that you must display. You must be broken over your sin, and only the Spirit of God can do that in your life. So maybe your prayer would say, Lord, make me broken. Cause me to have a brokenness over my sin. Help me to see my sin for what it is. Maybe you would depend on God this morning and not for yourself, not of your own strength. Maybe some of you are hiding in your sin and you're thinking, well, I don't have to tell anybody. I don't have to really confess that or deal with that with God. I'll kind of conquer it on my own. I'm pretty good at figuring problem solving. No, no, no. You're not displaying dependence on God if, you say, if you're saying that. Someone who's dependent on God is saying, I cannot do anything to save myself. Only you can do that. Also, if you want to walk in repentance, there's an emptiness of idols that must show up in our lives. So what are your idols? What do you love more than God? What do you trust more than God? What do you crave more than God? Where do you find your refuge more than God? And so it's my hope this morning that you would repent of your sin that we would all repent of our sins and that we would come to a place this morning where all of us here, Integrity Church, would just be a little taste of what heaven is going to be like where we all say salvation belongs.
to the Lord. God, help us. Let's pray. Father, you were kind to us. You were good to us. You were merciful. You were gracious. You were king, and you were Lord of all. Father, even in our sin, you are not distant. You are near. And Lord, if we feel distant from you, it's our own sin that causes us. It's our own sin that causes us to see the gospel through blurred vision. And it, Lord, only through the repentant heart that we'll see the gospel clearly. So Lord, would you give us this morning a brokenness of our sin? Lord, would you give us a dependence on you where we're not trying to outwork our sin, but we just submit our sin to you? Lord, would you create in us an emptiness of idols? And Lord, would you cause us to have a beauty, see the beauty that we have in repentance? That it's not about us, it's all about you. So Lord, I pray that we would not try to save ourselves, but we would come to you because salvation belongs to the Lord. And those in this room, Lord, who never trusted you as Lord, would you cause them to repent this morning and to confess their sins and to trust you with their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.